0: I'm Louisa Wilcox, and this is Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. We introduce you to scientists, filmmakers, policy experts, and others who share their insights and experience speaking and working on behalf of the bear. At a time of unprecedented human-caused change, grizzlies depend on us more than ever. To learn more about what's happening and how you can help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. Well, this is Louisa Wilcox with the Grizzly Times podcast, and I'm delighted to be here today with Brad Orsted. Brad is a friend of the grizzly and other wild animals, too. He's a wildlife photographer and a filmmaker. And with his wife, he co-owns the Wonderland Cafe and Lodge in Gardner, Montana, on the doorstep of Yellowstone Park. Brad is also the author of an upcoming book, Finding Marley, a story of healing in nature after the death of my daughter. Well, it's great to be with you, Brad.
1: Thanks for having me, Louisa. It's great to be here.
0: Well, before we talk about Bears and your book, I just wanted to ask you about how you and your family are doing in these strange days when coronavirus has upended all our lives. And, and maybe you could share what your Easter Sunday was like yesterday.
1: For sure. Yeah, we, we've definitely found ourselves in a in a strange time but I got to tell you as, as a writer and a wildlife photographer and if it wasn't for my wife and daughters being around a little bit more I, I really wouldn't know that anything had changed I'm pretty much a pro at um, self isolating at this point um, <laughs> but uh, yesterday yeah we had uh, we live in this little community here Garden, Montana right at the north entrance of Yellowstone and we own a cafe and lodge and we were worried about people um, not being able to celebrate Easter So we just put it on our community message board that we would be providing a free Easter dinner for anyone that needed it. And not exactly sure how we were gonna pay for that, but we wanted to extend that to the community. And so yesterday we did 200 uh, Easter dinners. 85 of those dinners were people that were not able to pay for a dinner because they're furloughed and and the state of things right now. And we actually had the, the churches and uh, the Chamber of Commerce and some private donations come in, and they covered everything to make sure that everybody wow. who wanted an Easter dinner yesterday got one. So it was important for us to do that for the community.
0: Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, um, bringing people together on a, a, an important celebration of, of spring yeah. of, of our spiritual lives. So thank you. Sure.
1: We enjoyed it. You know, the payback was the smiles on people's faces. hmm
0: That's great. So, Brad, in your new book, you write that Grizzlies saved your life. Maybe you can share how that happened.
1: Sure. Uh, You know, that's a great question. And one of my poet friends, Cindy Furman, who knows my story well, uh, told me that Grizzlies didn't save my life, that I saved my life, but Grizzlies reminded me why. And I think that might be a more accurate portrayal of what happened. Uh, Leave it to a poet um, Mm -hmm. to put it together like that. Uh, But first, maybe a little background uh, for the listeners would help. In the summer of 2010, while living in Michigan, our 15-month-old daughter Marley was killed during her first overnight visit to my mom's house. My mom refused to tell anyone the truth and eventually took a plea deal in the case as I descended into a literal hell of grief and addiction. Um, A twist of fate? Uh, found us leaving Michigan for the wilds of Yellowstone when my wife landed a job that would have us living directly in the park. Um, Unfortunately, a change in location did little for my diagnosed PTSD and depression. And when living in, uh, even living in the world's first national park was still a very dark place, I, I just didn't see much point in living anymore. So at rock bottom one morning, I walked out into Yellowstone, terribly hungover, and had a close encounter with a grizzly bear, and it was uh, it was brief and it was a non-threatening encounter. But it snapped me out of my kind of woe is me doldrums and my suicidal fantasies that I was having at the time. Um, it, it snapped me out of that place faster than any therapy or, or any prescription uh, did. And and uh, I, I remembered days before that I had actually wrote in my journal that it would be okay if I walked out into the backcountry of Yellowstone and died and uh, let the grizzly bears and the birds eat me and, and shit me out somewhere beautiful. And standing there on Swan Lake Flats in Yellowstone with a grizzly, uh, close enough I could see the whites of his eyes, I realized two things, that I didn't want to die anymore and I definitely did not want to be shit out somewhere beautiful anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So what next then after that?
1: You know, uh, it, it was a process after that. You know, it was uh, that experience with the grizzly made me realize uh, that when you're in grizzly country, it's imperative that you stay in the moment. There's no time to dawdle in the past or imaginations about the future. You better be front and center, and you better have your head on a swivel. And, and to me, that was the gift of the, of the grizzly bear it forces you to live only in that moment. You know, and that that's what that bear did for me that day is, is um, he, he put me on, um, it didn't heal me overnight, but it set me on a trajectory to where I found a seam out in, in grizzly country. Um, oddly enough, some of the most dangerous country in the lower 48 was where I found safest to heal. So it was out following grizzlies, photographing them, filming them Um, that I found that scene where the past and the future didn't matter, only the moment um, that I was with the grizzly bear was was what mattered.
0: Wow. Well, Brad, you went on to uh, be a filmmaker and did a a wonderful documentary film on two orphan twin grizzly bears uh, that live up north of Gardner in the Tom Miner Basin. Maybe you can share why these bears meant so much to you.
1: So it, it all started when we were up filming some, some grizzly bears in a basin, and we came across this female who had three koi, which stand for Cub of the Year, which means those cubs were just, just born that, that year. So when we saw them in about October, they, they're about eight months old, so they're just little ones following their mom, and um, she, she stood up a lot. Uh, so we had an idea that she might be a new mom um, who was a little nervous. So they they actually, they actually nicknamed her Nervous Nellie, and she had her three little cubs with her. And, and then they disappeared with the other bears to go into hibernation. And um, about a month after, the last time I'd seen them, we got a phone call that a mother grizzly had been shot at the back of the basin for standing up. Um <laughs> An elk hunter took it for an aggressive move, which which it's not. It's just an opportunity for her to stand up and look around. And and he killed her dead in front of her three cubs. And Fish and Wildlife did a flyover a couple weeks later, and the cubs would not leave their mother's side. Uh, So a friend and I spent our Thanksgiving 2015 snowshoeing in, uh, breaking the law uh, as a federally protected animal. But we were going to go in there and dig a snow cave, and try to drag mom into it in hopes that the, the cubs, her cubs, would follow her in there. And uh, it was about minus 9 that day, and we snowshoed all day and could not find her and could not find the cubs. So I, I thought they were goners, that they that he didn't just kill one bear, he killed four bears that day. And um, lo and behold, they came back out, two of them, um, the following year came back out. And, and I followed them for three years. Um filming them, photographing, telling them their story. And uh, in in 2018, they came out together again, uh, the two orphans. And I was at Doug Peacock's house, and and we were kind of starting to worry about these guys. They're getting a lot of attention from people. And Doug said, let's make a film about these bears so we can prove that they're good bears, that they're behaving, and, and just tell their story of survival. Um, and, and so that's what I did, and it, it, it coincided with uh, that fall of 2018 is when I got sober, when I, I checked myself into treatment and, and quit drinking. And, and um, I spent 30 days with those bears. They, I walked out of rehab. It wasn't for me. I, I knew what I needed. I needed wilderness. And I went out and I spent 30 days with those bears and sitting under a big Douglas fir tree. was the, Those orphans were kind of my meeting and uh Mm -hmm. and i stayed with them and we filmed them when we worked on on the film and as it was in edit we found out that two grizzly bears matching their descriptions uh were euthanized out in, in paradise valley for for getting into food that was left out by by humans and uh when i when i find found out it was our little orphans that were killed uh it almost sent me back over the edge but i I made a promise to my daughter and to my creator that I would stay sober and I would tell their story. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And uh, since then, um, you know, we've, we've told the orphan story and it's gained international attention and it's, it's helped bring a spotlight onto some of the issues facing uh, grizzly bears right now.
0: Yeah, obviously uh, the tragic death of those uh, twins. Reminds us how how much we have left to do to and to address the failures outside the national parks in terms of handling garbage and and other attractants that can wind up killing bears. So, what do you think needs to be done, and and how do you think we should go about doing it?
1: You know, for me, Louisa, it's all about education and local resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a partnership and a shared responsibility. In the community, and, and I do wholeheartedly believe that, that we can coexist. You know, we live in one of the most amazing places in the world, and with that, I feel comes an inherent responsibility to to protect and, and preserve it. And just like our our work yesterday, trying to feed families in Gardner, it's grassroots, and it starts here, and it starts with education. And I don't fault the people of the valley that uh, were a little ill prepared for grizzlies, even though they live. You know, right next door to Yellowstone, they they just don't see them, and they just weren't prepared for them. So, um, I don't think you hammer people. I don't I don't think you bulldog people. I don't think that's the way we we work. We come together as a community and we talk about the things that concern us, and we talk about the things that are important to us. And when we get away from our keyboards and away from behind our computers and we sit down like people at, at tables or, or get together, we find out there's a lot more that binds us than defies us, you know, that that separates us, Um, and and I think that's how how it works, Louisa. We get together and we talk about problems and we find solutions.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, certainly all around Yellowstone and communities outside the park, Yellowstone and Grand Teton, um, we've seen a lot of progress. I mean, near Gardner, the community of Cook City, I I played a small bit part in a major effort that, uh, you know, redid how that dump replaced essentially a a faulty dumping, garbage dumping system with an enclosed building, and, and now Bears don't you know, die downtown, or you know, and similarly, Gardner has a ways to go, but Gardner's made progress, so there's a lot of success stories um, to build on. Uh, communities have, have made a lot of progress, so
1: I think... And, and we, we're living in the heart of it, you know, and I'm so proud of Gardner. Our, our little town does great with um, bear-proof uh, containers about people mm-hmm. getting... Um, root vegetables out of gardens. And, and last year, the past couple of years, I've seen on social media, if someone has apples still in their, hanging in their trees in, in October, people will post on the community board and say, hey, did you need help picking those apples? Because we'd sure love to come over and help you today. So instead mm-hmm. of shaming them publicly, they offer help publicly. And then a lot of people say, oh crap, yeah, I shouldn't have those apples. I know that's an attractive And as a community, we'll go clean that up together. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where the progress starts, the work you've done and the work around here, and and um, just that we pull together. I don't think anybody does things maliciously. Sometimes it just slips their mind, and we all need reminders.
0: Right. Right. And money helps, too, obviously. I mean, Yellowstone Park, the Park Service made, you know, such headway because they had resources in terms of bear-proof dumpsters and, you know, garbage programs and access to resources for massive education of visitors and stuff. And it seems like, you know, money is an important component of success, you know, the other side of the coin of education.
1: It, it really is. You know, we can get people together all day long and talk about ideas, but the implementation of those ideas usually takes some money. And uh, there's, there's a lot of people we find as you reach out who care about grizzly bears and who care about the wild and, and who want to help. A lot of people maybe just, just don't know where. So that's where um, I feel like my wife and I do do a lot of great uh, – that's our strong suit. <laughs> is connecting to need, the, the need and the people who are able to facilitate it.
0: Well, the orphan twin grizzly bear story of Tom Miner is, you know, part of a larger story too, um, reflecting the dramatic changes we've seen brought on by climate change. I mean, we have now grizzly bear foraging behavior uh, changing as a result of loss of, of key foods due to climate change and disease, and and up in Tom Miner, we've lost white bark pine forests that had once provided abundant, you know, fat-rich seeds for grizzly bears in the late summer and fall. And without that white bark, grizzly bears are now digging for caraway and biscuit root in pastures shared with cows. Um, that what what have you been doing to engage the public in that story of of climate change and its effects, not just on grizzlies but but other wild animals?
1: You know that, that's a great. Great question, Louisa, um, especially up in Tom Minor. I felt part of my duty up there was to educate a little bit. It was a great spot for, for viewing grizzlies and, and a great spot as an opportunist to where I could um, reach the most people. And in the past couple of years, I noticed a couple of organizations up there spreading a little bit of disinformation about grizzlies where they would mm-hmm. say, they would come up to people and say, hey, you see these 14 grizzlies out here in this meadow. This is a snapshot of what the whole ecosystem looks like out in Yellowstone. And we've got too many bears, and we need to open up a hunt. And so I would let them finish with their diatribe, and then I'd walk up to people and say, did you believe what he just told you? <laughs> and most people shook their head no, and I told them, you know, I work as a wildlife photographer specializing in grizzly bears and I spend about 300 days a year out in Yellowstone and, and in the ecosystem looking for grizzlies, and if they were that easy to find, I wouldn't have to spend 300 days out there a year doing it. So, mm-hmm. um my again, my mission is education based and get out there and explain to people this is why we're we're seeing these Um, Bears come down out of the high country, you know, and and I'm not a scientist, I'm just a photographer. So I go on what I see. And the years that I've seen marginal crops of uh, whitebark pine and, and some of the other things they would be eating on up high, is when I see more bears down low digging roots, um, getting into food that isn't properly stored. It's also a time when I've noticed, um, I think it tends to correlate with more hunters, elk hunters having experiences with grizzly bears. Um, when they go back to get their kills because they're they're getting desperate for food in the fall. And so I think when you put all these components together and you have grizzly bears out in a meadow, that's your teaching moment. That's the time to talk to them. That's the time to hand out a card. That's the time to give them a link to a website. And I'm not trying to sway anybody's mind. Again, I'm just a photographer. I just wanna put things out there for people and give them an accurate portrayal of, of what's going on. And I think most people, um, when they when they hear a little bit and see a little bit, they can start to connect the dots themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one you know, fascinating aspect of the Tom Miner grizzly bear situation is the work that the ranchers in the upper part of the of the valley um, have done to coexist. Maybe you can talk a bit about uh, your experience there.
1: Yeah, you know, when we when we first started up there, I, w- I was shocked to see um, you know a, a dozen. 20 grizzly bears out in the meadow with a bunch of white historic breed cows out there in the same meadow and i thought the owner must be crazy she's just asking for it and and we would see the cows actually run the cows look like they just wanted to play and like hey who are you and the the grizzly bears were terrified of them um but she has a working cattle ranch as, as do many of them up there and they work on coexistence and so they have range riders who go out there and follow their cattle um, they don't just turn their animals loose on Forest Service land and hope for the best, and then when they go to get and retrieve them in the fall, expect the state and us taxpayers to pay for losses. They're very proactive. Um, the Andersons have actually, to my knowledge, I think stopped um, raising sheep up there just because it's a predator-rich area. Um, so so – they are my heroes up there, and that's why I wanted to work so hard with education up there, with people visiting, that they are respectful of the ranches, of the families, of the work that they're doing, and, and of the bears up there. They they are really a microcosm to me of how things can and should be done in the West.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, the West Ranchers are obviously narrative. a
0: diverse group of people, but that is kind of a, a unique and and wonderful situation where those ranchers are really really trying their best
1: it it really is you know and it's it's one thing we found out moving here from Michigan to Montana I I was kind of in this hermetically sealed environment that I thought everybody loves predators because I love predators Mm -hmm. and then when you get out here and you talk to some of the families that have had to ranch with predators for years um, you realize that some of them may have some different feelings on these things and again I'm not trying to sway anybody and I like to hear everybody's views on this because that's how, how we find common ground together. You know, I've always felt that um, if everybody felt the same way about it, that's called a cult. What we're trying to do is <laughs> a community, you know, where people have different feelings, but it doesn't mean we can't come together. And I think Tom Miner is, is a perfect example, a microcosm themselves, of, of how this can be done.
0: Well, Brad, you just mentioned that grizzly bears and large carnivores can be a really polarizing. Um, and, you know, of course we know that even though families come to Yellowstone and Glacier to catch a glimpse of a grizzly bear or a wolf in the flesh, there are a lot of local officials and locals who just want to remove, say, endangered species protection from the Yellowstone grizzly bear population so that more bears can be killed. Why do you think grizzlies... Are, the, the views about grizzlies are so extreme.
1: No, they certainly are, and, and there may there may not be another animal in North America, especially that is shrouded in more mystery and lore than the grizzly bear. You know, they've they've been immortalized as uh, the epitome of a bad camping experience, and portrayed as man's best friend on TV. and And I think they're just really it's, they're just really misunderstood. A lot of times, um, and I think it's this misunderstanding that fosters those extreme views in people. You know, most most people I come across, either they seem to either love or hate grizzly bears without much middle ground, and and really without even understanding why they love or hate them. You know, and and I don't mean to anthropomorphize grizzlies, but I don't think we should be anthropocentric either and and think that we're the only beings capable of love and compassion and, and emotion. You know, as a wildlife photographer specializing in grizzlies, I've seen that love and compassion and, and intelligence in the grizzly bear. And and so it breaks my heart when I hear people um, say that they hate them and that they need to be removed. And, and I think a lot of that is, um, unfortunately, is historical. Some of it comes from generations of people just regurgitating. Um, what they've heard um, uh, but I think there's a new um, understanding and 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 I hope that we're moving in the right direction
0: yeah I mean I don't know what you think about this but um, I've I've often thought that grizzlies and wolves can be sort of a, a stand-in, a symbolic stand-in for a changing West. So the people aren't responding necessarily to the animal itself or to even a multi-generational experience, real experience with the animal, but rather their perception of how values in the West are changing. Do you, do you sense that or No.
1: I do, you know, and, and, excuse me, living here in, in little old Gardner, Montana, um, I've I've seen how things have moved from a kind of a hunting, um, you know, we still obviously have a lot, hunting is, is big business here, and, and it's some of the, the best hunting in the world, but a lot of people are hunting with their cameras these days. And more and more so that they that they want to come see that. And these people that are trapped in offices and trapped in different spots, they want to come here and they want to get a taste of the wild, something they can take back, a picture they can hang in their cubicle, you know, when they're when they're back at work. And and I think it's changing the the narrative of the West, changing it from a place that is to be tapped and mined and and harvested, and uh, to more of a place that's to be appreciated and respected and preserved.
0: So Brad, you've written uh, about a growing body of research on how nature can help heal all sorts of emotional wounds, physical issues, loneliness, addiction, heartbreak, and you've been helping to expose some of these kids with special needs to nature. Maybe you can share a bit about your experience with these kids and and changes you've seen in them.
1: Sure, Um, you know, it was was actually a bit uh, of an accident how it happened that uh, we were out with um, there's a, a ranch in the valley that works with um, kids who have Asperger's and and high-functioning Downs and uh, Down syndrome and they asked if we would be willing to take the ranch owner and um, one of uh, the kids that came from Minnesota that has Asperger's and and her uncle I believe it was if we could just take them out for a walk in Montana and maybe show them some grizzly bear signs a scratch or a track or some hair or something so so we said sure so we're at, actually out walking with um, and I'm talking with the ranch owner and I'm talking to her about kind of my story and, and how nature gave me a safe place to heal and and a place to kind of get off that merry-go-round and uh, we're, we're we're walking with this girl named Carolyn and we see what we think is a is a bear up on the hill so we set up a scope and it's a mom, uh, a mother grizzly with a little tiny brand-new koi, a brand-new cub of the year. And so we asked Carolyn if she wants to see it. She looks through the scope and sees it. This is a girl who would not make eye contact with any of us, who would not say a word, hadn't, hadn't spoken in public, was just terrified of strangers. And she turned around and she said, how, how, lo- how long will the baby stay with Mama? What are they eating? <laughs> Where are they going to go next? What do they do at night? She just opened up, and I saw everyone there start crying. Her uncle's had tears streaming down his face, said she's never wow. made eye contact with people. Um, so Carolyn went on to actually... Um, worked through some of her issues. She was actually uh, the head person at the ranch the next year. So she would bring the other kids from Minnesota and kids that were suffering. And Carolyn would show them around and she'd show them the Native American sites and she'd show them grizzly bears. And, and so I knew something was there. And then I had another friend, uh, they have an organization called Will's Hope out of Colorado Springs and, and Mark and Sarah Squire's um, son lost his life, um, to some of his battles. And and so as a a parent who has lost a child, um, we were fast friends. And they bring a a group of kids from Colorado Springs up here that have have Asperger's to a Yellowstone um, experience as a full immersion. And I work with them every year with these kids. And it's the most – I, it's when I feel my best is is working with them and seeing those changes and and we know it's working because the suicide rate in these kids are dropping and when the kids come up here and they don't want to talk. They don't want to look at anybody. They don't want to experience anything. And two years later, they're the mouthpiece and they're the mentor and they're bringing people back. We know it's working. Wow. And, and that, that healing is there. That therapy is there out in wilderness. And and there's no side effects except maybe some sore legs and a hungry belly. Wow.
0: That's, that's remarkable. So how long have you been doing this work?
1: Uh, so I started with Will's Hope. I think this will be my third, third or fourth year with them. And then the first year with Eric's Ranch out in uh, Paradise Valley was 2014, 2015, I think. And, and as far as I know, Carolyn's still working with them. And so I'm looking forward to, to getting back with them as well. And uh, with Will's Hope, we're actually looking at introducing a pilot program for veterans, <clears throat> excuse me, a pilot program for veterans this this year. Um, Mark has military experience, and as, as do I and my family. And And so we've seen this work with me. We've seen this work with special needs kids. And I really think anyone suffering from PTSD um, can benefit from this therapy. And veterans were one of the first groups we, of course, wanted to help.
0: Wow. Well, congratulations. That's wonderful, wonderful work. Well, Brad, you mentioned Native American sites, and uh, you also wrote about Um, some of your work with Native Americans, including a a Crow Indian sweat ceremony that you um, participated in that was transformative. Maybe you can uh, share a little bit about how that experience and some of those experiences helped you heal.
1: Sure. Yeah, uh, you know, I've always been interested in, in Native American culture and spirituality and had read extensively in high school and college And actually went up to Pine Ridge with Lauren Black Elk a couple times in the 90s and then uh, when we moved here excuse me when we moved to Yellowstone we were um, I was in a bad spot obviously still with the uh, suffering from the loss of our daughter and I met a friend who was adopted Crow Indian and so I was talking to him about it and and just wondered if maybe through the ancient ceremony of sweat lodge I could help kind of start to heal myself Um, so I talked to him and we went over to Crow Fair one year, which is a celebration over at Crow Agency in Montana. And he talked to a healer there uh, who agreed to let me in to um, one of their ceremonies, which not too many people outside of the, the tribes are allowed in. And um, I was excited uh, to be able and honored to be able to do this, but I got to tell you, zooming down. Uh, a, a gravel reservation road, realizing that this was about to happen was way different than reading about it on the, on the library footsteps in Boulder, Colorado. Um, it was getting real very fast. So um, they welcomed me in to sweat lodge ceremony, purification. Um, there's a healer that came out of the hills um, to pour to run this ceremony just for me. Um, I, I was touched. And um, so I went through the the ceremony, which involves very, very, very intense heat and praying and chanting. And um, when I came out, I had a talk with the the shaman who, who poured for me. And he told me about Indians' heartache and their loss and their experiences. And he told me that now the time for grieving the loss of my daughter was over after that ceremony, it was over, that I needed to be present for the rest of my family and to take care of them, and I couldn't live in the past, and as he's telling me this on Crow Agency on a hot, sweltering August day, all I could think about was it was the same lesson that the grizzly bear had taught me, not to live in the past, not to worry about the future, to be in the moment. And um, that, that's what the Crow Indians taught me. And I am eternally grateful and indebted to them for for sharing um, their culture and their medicine with me. And, and I still go back every year uh, to Crow Fair and, and visit and camp and, and talk with them. And, you know, one thing I found that, um, you know, when I would tell people what had happened in my story to to psychiatrists and doctors, and, you know, they would even get a tear in their eye, but try telling an Indian about your problems. Right. (laughs) You you know, he's like, oh, really, is that all that happens? (laughs) Yeah. We've been dealing with that for 500 years, but, you know, in in all honesty, it's a a people that know heartache, that know loss, and have maintained their pride and their integrity, and above all, maintained a sense of humor, which – for me was um, I couldn't believe that they could be so loving and so opening and, and have such a sense of humor um, for everything that they've been through and and I got to tell you, it's again, that medicine is natural and it's real, and there are no side effects from it, mm-hmm. no negative side effects
0: yeah, well, Brett, I think you and I met uh... with a group of northern cheyenne and yellowstone lake um, around the grizzly bear uh... in around two thousand fifteen maybe um, uh... with rain bear Sands last when the northern cheyenne were beginning their coalition around the grizzly bear protecting grizzly bears from trophy hunting and of course you know they amassed a huge following of many other tribes across the country and it was really all about grizzly bears as relatives and guides and healers that were, you know, vulnerable to being hunted at that time. So, yeah. And it, I it wasn't. I was, provide,
1: yeah. I, I was going to send ahead. you that picture along with the other ones this morning. I still have that one on my on my uh, laptop. I saved that photo of us.
0: Oh, great, great, yeah. In that morning. Well, and uh, you were supporting that effort, you know, throughout, and uh, the campaign just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of more and more uh, tribes who didn't seem like they had a connection to Yellowstone Grizzlies, like the Hopi and Navajo, but but definitely did have a connection to Grizzlies and, and a shared concern about what was imminently going to happen to them.
1: It's true. You know, I've been out to, D- to uh, Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill with rain, Um, and for the grizzly bears and and the tribal coalition to to cover that as a photographer. So I got to see firsthand um, what behind the scenes and the front lines look like. And um, and making, we have another film coming up this year um, with with Doug Peacock and Save the Yellowstone Grizzly about about grizzly bears and climate change and the disappearance of grizzly bears in, in the lower 48. And so I was talking to Rain about this, and I wanted to see if we could go film um, a native american tribe that still does a grizzly bear ceremony and ah. rain told me unfortunately most of those are gone from the mm-hmm. lower 48 there's still some in bc but since the grizzly bear has been gone from the landscape and most of its historic range so is the medicine so those healers that specialized that had grizzly bear medicine when the grizzly bear goes those healers go so when the bear goes. It's not just the animal off the physical landscape, but the cultural ramifications. That that grizzly medicine that those healers have had for ten thousand plus years is gone. It's gone forever when it goes. And and to me that's one of the biggest tragedies of of what how this has affected some of the um tribes um that, that live on historic grizzly bear land is they not only lose the bear, they lose the cultural significance and, and that's irreplaceable. Yeah. But
0: we are seeing, I mean, through, through the coalition built around the grizzly bear and, you know, protests like the Standing Rock uh, protests over water and uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, we are seeing Native Americans really standing up, and uh, the pipeline protests in British Columbia too, um, you know, tribes really coming together to put a, a, you know, stake in the ground over their cultural connections, even as fragmented as they, as they may have become over time. So I think
1: there's hope in and that. There, there's definitely hope in that, and they've done a tremendous amount of work. And and I feel like some of the tribes maybe needed something like like the grizzly bear to unite under, to bring them back together. Because you know, once again, there's a lot more that that holds us together than tears us apart. And, and they needed that as a people as much as anyone. So I'm I'm so proud of them taking the tribes and the coalition and rain and and everybody who's worked so hard to to protect and preserve the grizzlies. You know, they're a sovereign nation, and they deserve to have their voice heard.
0: Yeah, and they're fighting for that um, with over grizzly bear management now to, to basically get a seat at the table and determine what happens with grizzly bears around the northern Rockies. So hopefully they'll continue to, you know, make headway that way. I hope so. So what's next for you, Brad? Your book is coming out uh, this fall?
1: Yeah, so we've got a uh, a book coming out about healing in nature that uh, I don't know if it'll be out this fall. From what I understand from publishers, an election year is a horrible time to release a book. (laughs) So um, I think the shelves will be full of everything else at at, uh, Barnes & Noble this this fall. But um, we're hoping for next spring, 2021, spring release, um, after everything hopefully settles down. um, You know, it's, it's important for me to get that. Book out like I said a little bit earlier in the interview um, when I got sober um, you know I took a knee in front of my creator in front of my daughter and and i I told them that if they would <clears throat> excuse me if they would stay with me to this I would tell this story and i and I tell it to honor my daughter and to protect the grizzly bears and the wild places that i that I feel like we all need and you know my my biggest one of my other biggest reasons for doing this is I just don't want to see people go down the hard road that I had to go down um, to find some healing and some peace. I I know that that's it's out there and it's in nature and you don't have to be in Yellowstone. You could be in, in your backyard. It's just being outside and being quiet, you know, and sometimes we need to excite our mind and exhaust our body um, to get things right. And so that's my biggest, my biggest reasons for, for this book was to, to honor my daughter to protect grizzlies and to help other people along the way so that's what's next and, and i hope we can achieve all of that
0: well i hope so too and and thank you so much for taking the time brad uh, you're listening to uh grizzly times podcast with the louisa wilcox and uh here today with brad orsted thank you so much
1: it's my pleasure louisa thank you so much for having me
0: if you want to learn more about the grizzly and what you can do to help Subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. And if you can, give us a review.